You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Our topic today is one of the great, I'm so proud of it. It's one of the great facilities in New Orleans and in a town known for a lot of old things. This is fairly new, but it's really important. Uh, it's described here, I want to ask you about this, as the second most visited museum in the United States. And with me is the guy who's been there the whole time as part of it. This is Gordon Nick Mueller, who's the founding president and CEO emeritus of the National World War II Museum. Uh, thank you very much uh, uh, for joining us, Nick. There's a, a new book that just came out about the building and telling the story of the construction of, of the building, uh, which is which is very impressive. But let me ask you, let me ask you this. Uh, I know it traces back to Stephen Ambrose. In your life, what was the Big Bang moment when you first got involved with the project? Well, the Big Bang was uh, uh, one afternoon we had too many drinks of uh, his cheap sherry that he always served. Everybody <laughs> says, how do you know it was sherry? Because I said he served the gallo sherry every afternoon because he said he had five kids and we could drink more of it than we could of the hard stuff. So <laughs> anyway, we we just, uh, it was his, we had been kicking around the idea, or he had been uh, for several years since we established the Eisenhower Center. But the Big Bang moment came that afternoon after Greg O'Brien, the chancellor at the university, asked me to be the new president and of the research and technology park that uh, we'd acquired uh, the old Pontchartrain Beach uh, amusement park site across from the university. And so all of a sudden, Steve connected the dots. And that day he sat me down. He said, and now he had done this plenty of times. We had always schemed up different ideas, both at the university and outside um, uh, things, his D-Day to the Rhine tour. So we were used to doing projects and scheming them over drinks. And so he said, sit down. So I did. And he says, well, uh, I got an idea. And uh, this is it. We're going to do a small D-Day museum right here in the lakefront because you got free land over there in that research park. And uh, I'm going to give you all my thousand oral histories of D-Day veterans and some artifacts. Uh, and, uh, and we'll tell the story of Andrew Higgins right on the historic site where he tested those landing craft on that beach. That was the beach area that he used. Uh, to test them, and uh, and he says, so that's it. What do you think? And I said, it's the best idea you ever had. See, let's do it. <laughs> he says, good. It only cost a million dollars. And I said, oh, Steve, you're so naive about these things. It's going to be at least four million. <laughs> he says, oh God, we could never raise that much money. Well, that was the idea that got us started. And uh, and I talked to Greg O'Brien. I said, you know, it's not a technology, but it, it fits the criteria of um, coming out of our, our faculty um, uh, minds. And it's technology transfer of a certain kind. It's a cultural idea that, uh, that uh, transfers into a museum experience. And he was going to put his Eisenhower Center 
there. He thought uh, he was thinking about retirement. That was in 1990. And his D-Day book was coming out four years later. And his, we thought we'd be open by 1994. <laughs> and so, so aside from missing by the timeline by 10 years, <laughs> I missed a few zeros there. $4 million or so. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, neither one of, we, we formed a, a board of directors to, uh, 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 when we did get 4 million, Bob Livingston um, uh, in Congress. I mean, Steve ran up there right away when we were told that you're never going to get anywhere unless you get a star with some federal money. And so he ran off and told Bob the same story. He told me, Bob said, that's great. How much you need? He said, four million. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Steve, you could have asked for more. And he said, that's what you told me. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, that wasn't a feasibility study. That was uh, over drinks. Anyway, uh, so we had a board and uh, lots of ups and downs. And as you know, ended up downtown instead yeah. of the lakefront. Now, well, I should have mentioned that we're talking about the University of New Orleans here as being the uh, the center of all this of, of it starting. And you, and you and, uh, and Ambrose knew each other primarily for the history department, right? As historians. Well, yeah, I mean, helped recruit him in 1971, uh, and we became fast friends when he came down for the interview with the history department. We were down there with Jared Johnson in his in his house on Decatur Street, and Steve came down from Kansas State, and and. Uh, I had I'd known about him as a professionally, and uh, but what we found out was that we both had so many things in common. We both were, played sports in high school and college, and and uh, we both loved the outdoors and camping and hiking. And he got me into canoeing, I got him into sailing, and uh, we just we just hit it off. I, I begged him to come after he left, and he I was living down in the French Quarter then, and he came back with Mora before he decided for a weekend. And uh, and we just had a great time. And I think that was a done deal at that point. But then we just did all those things together and traveled to Europe together and started his D-Day to the Rhine tour, bought a sailboat together. I mean, we traveled the Rockies and, and, uh, and sailed to the Bahamas. So we, you know, we was one of those special friendships uh, you might have two or three times, two or three people like that in your life. And uh, we shared everything uh, and trusted each other completely. Um, there's a picture in the book of uh, of you and Ambrose. Uh, I know you wrote a book about Lewis and Clark, about the Lewis and Clark expedition. And there's a picture with you and Ambrose kind of looking Lewis and Clark-like. Did you all do part of the expedition together? or? Uh... Yeah, we did, actually. Uh, that was on the Lolo Trail, sort of the, the Bitterroot Mountains up there, and uh, as, you're, as they were uh, the, probably the toughest part of the journey uh, for the Lewis and Clark expedition. That was in uh, uh, 1999 on a tour that we, and I'd been up there a couple of times before on parts of the trail with him, but that was uh, a time we were, he was doing groups, of about 30 to uh, to the Lewis and Clark Trail and also to Normandy to raise money for the museum. And so that was kind of a fundraising event. I went on about 90% of that tour. And uh, actually, the, the, the whole idea for the, got him so excited about Lewis and Clark was uh, in 1975, we went out camping in the uh, Rockies uh, 
uh, and he had never been. I'd spent a lot of my youth out there and then older, I skied and spent summers camping. So I said, Steve, you got to go to the Rockies. We'll go camping for the summer. And so his daughter and uh, 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 came down and, and uh, Barry and our dogs and, and Beth. And we camped for about six weeks. But I'll tell you what, when we went up to the Independence Pass above Aspen, and he saw the Rocky Mountains for the first time. He'd never been west of the Black Hills at that point. And he got up there and he thought, he stood on top of the mountain there at 11,000 feet and thought he was Ernest Hemingway shouting at the elements. <laughs> I'm coming back next year and I'm going to the Lewis and Clark Trail with my kids for the bicentennial. And uh, so he did. And he was actually, that picture of me and Steve was right near one of the campsites, I mean, nobody knows exactly where Lewis and Clark camp, but they, they know the trail that he went over. And he, on July 4th, uh, uh, 1976, he read from the, the journals of Meriwether Lewis to his whole family and a class of from UNO uh, sitting there by the campfire, uh, reading from the diary of the expedition on July 4th. Uh, and... Uh, and that very day of the entry of Meriwether Lewis in his uh, in his diaries, and that, and his daughter said, "I'm going to marry somebody out here and live out here," and she has. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and C bought a house in Helena, and so the rest is history. Yeah. From what I've heard about him, he he was a, well. He he went to these destinations, and he really got moved by them um, when he went. Like I've heard, like when he went to uh, Omaha Beach and just. Uh, you know, he oh, yeah. that he really got excited by these places. He did. Uh, Steve was a very visceral guy. And when it's thing, subjects he wrote about, he tried to immerse himself in the character and then the identity of that individual. And he'd like to go to the places where the individual was and he'd walk in their footsteps. And he'd go to Civil War battlefields when he was Johns Hopkins. And he went to Europe and he did um, uh, the beaches of, of Normandy. I was there with him one time uh, in the late 90s and on walking along Omaha Beach. And he, uh, we were just there. He was doing research and I was uh, coming from the Innsbruck program. I spent four or five days on that occasion. So he's walking down the beach and he says, well, the tide's about right. He says, I wonder what it's like trying to run back toward shore from, <laughs> from, uh, from the ocean coming in. <laughs> so it was a hot day and he just <laughs> dropped his, his bathing suit off and ran out in the surf, came right <laughs> back in. <laughs> and naked as today. <laughs> I think all the beachgoers were out there were kind of stunned. <laughs> Not that it should have been a surprise in Europe anyway. Yeah, but, yeah true. So that story is true. I, I, I've heard that story, I didn't know if it was true, but yeah, it must have been, a, to be able to do that must have been quite an experience. Yeah, it was, and uh, he just he he just loved uh, you know to get inside the 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 minds and the body. When he's writing Crazy Horse and Custer, one month he'd be writing, he'd get his uh, hair flowing down for a Custer and have his buckskin jacket on, and the next month he'd have a loincloth and he'd braid his uh, hair <laughs> like, like Crazy Horse. And when he's writing uh, the uh, nothing like it in the world about the trans. Pacific Railroad or Transcontinental Railroad, he 
had a whole land about six feet long of a miniature thing where they drove the gold spike at the end, you know, in the middle and uh, with all the little toy soldiers and, and the tracks going in there. So that's just the way Steve wrote and uh, really get get the whole story into his brain. Now, he's obviously a wealthy man, too. I mean, what, what didn't he make thoughtful contributions to the museum? Yeah, he did. I mean, somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars, um, uh, you know, give or take, and tremendous amounts of time that no charge to the museum ever. Uh, took tours. To, and, and I mean, that, that was his personal gifts. And he also uh, gave about the same amount of money to the University of Wisconsin for an endowed chair. Uh, not for not, not named after him, but his uh, his uh, professor uh, up there that had motivated him to go in the in the history, and he gave um, funds to the other museums uh, too. Uh, and so he was a very generous man, and uh, and you know, of course, he was getting big advances. He's probably the one of the wealthier historians working out of a university. There are some historians who just Right for a living might 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 be might have made more, but in those days he was uh, he was really an A list writer, especially after the Lewis and Clark book. That was the one that really put him over the top. How did UNO? How was UNO able to attract him? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, because when I came as a young assistant professor in '69. I'd heard about Ambrose. He was there in the early 60s after he finished his um, PhD from Wisconsin. He was still writing the dissertation for a couple of years. And then he taught on sabbatical at LSU for one year for T. Harry Williams. And then Hopkins called. And we thought he was, everybody in the department who knew him thought, you know, he's going to be major. He's going to end up in Harvard or Yale somewhere. Went out to Kansas and and uh, Kansas State, and that's when Richard Nixon in the height of the Vietnam War, and that was Stevens' radical days. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so he and he and his wife and all the hippies of the time that he was lined up with uh, were there heckling uh, Nixon. And they thought that uh, that university was the safest campus that Nixon mm -hmm. could go to at that time. But turns out that uh, Steve, as the Eisenhower Chair of, of History, there. Uh, spared spared nothing in uh, uh, in his criticism of the war and of Nixon, and so he he just you know they can make you uncomfortable at university. They he had full professor and endowed chair. So, but uh, Jared Johnson, our chairman down here, saw an opening. Thought that he was probably unhappy up there in that situation, and when he finally decided to bring Nor Mora down to. He said, I think I might do this after his visit. He says, they tolerate eccentrics down in New Orleans pretty well. <laughs> he said so. And I think he recognized that he was one. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, so we had a very deep and, and great, great friendship. Yeah. Well, the, well the, part of the story I've always heard, though, was at the beginning, as you suggest, he envisioned this as being on the lakefront because of yeah, that's where that, yeah, because I had started that research park and it was, I was just doing the master plan for the research park and we had one building, the Center for Ener Energy Resource Management that I'd already attracted through uh, a big government grant, 
and that was going to be built. Uh, but the rest of it was planned, but not uh, occupied yet. But the the deal was that it had a, a, the the whatever uh, corporations or institutions we built there uh, had to have a relationship with the university with a professor from the sciences, liberal arts or whatever. And so, but the Higgins piece, the fact that Higgins landed there and and that he didn't think it would cost much money. Uh, and we fought that. It was the biggest controversy uh, for the museum board for the first five years, because about half the board was always loyal to Steve and to the idea of a historic site. The other half, the smart half, <laughs> Uh, uh, thought that if it's a tourist it's a, a museum it's a it, ought, it has to be downtown where the tourists are and not not five miles away from uh from the french quarter but we you know steve was a simple guy in a lot of ways and 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 i was president of the park so my best friend wanted it there and chancellor o'brien wanted it there and so i was caught between my boss and my best friend so i had to always defend the site and I had a vested interest too that it'd be in the in the park, but but look, we had to face a decision. We had a consultant came in and talked to us about 1993 and said, "Look, you got to decide if you want to be primarily a research and education center with Steve's oral histories and historians there." And he says, "And and maybe happen to have a small museum attached to it, uh, in which case the research park is fine." If you want to be a tourist attraction that happens to have a research center with it, then you got to be downtown. And that sort of clarified things for me and I think uh, everybody, although no decision was made after after that uh, presentation by this consultant from Baltimore, but she was a museum specialist and and she just hit the nail on the head. And I write about that in the longer book. I mean, it was kind of a pivotal moment. But we were running out of money, uh, federal money that we had gotten by 1995. And it was going to go back to Washington if we didn't use it somehow related to a building, a capital. We couldn't use it for operations, just building. So they found this old warehouse <laughs> right in the middle of what was then a pretty much, as you remember, pretty much a slum uh, down there on uh, what well, it was still called Howard at that time, not Higgins. Mm -hmm. But it was a million bucks, and that's that's the exact number that we needed. We bought the, that corner property there, what was Howard and, and Magazine. And and that was the beginning of having starting to have some success. Now, was there a point where he was warming up to the idea of having it downtown, or was he resistant until the end? Or Oh, no, as soon as it, he knew that... that, that We'd gone through three of the three million of the four million, and we were run, we had no operating, we had no staff, uh, we had a part time accountant. We did have a, 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 finally by ninety five or so uh, ninety four we got a administrative assistant, but we never we had we knew we needed an executive director or you know a president of the to run this place and to develop it. But we never had any money because we the board wasn't successful in raising private funds, and we could use that for operating, but not the not the federal money was prohibited to use that for operating funds. So, you know, Steve and I both believed that uh, 
that as soon as they heard the idea, they'd do what Bob Livingston did. They'd say, here's my money. This is the best idea I've ever heard. But, you know, what we found out as we went along, at least I did, that uh, private money comes last, yeah. <laughs> especially corporate money. They're always happy when the Congress or, or the state of Louisiana puts up money. But that, it was the public money that really got us got us to the point where we could succeed by 1998, 99. But we went broke a couple of times. So um, journey, and I didn't expect to be running it for sure. <laughs> yeah. So the money givers believed in the downtown site because it was closer to the tourist base. Yeah, but they still, even after we got downtown, it wasn't as, as if everybody was opening their wallets. Um, uh, it was tough. It was hard raising money. Um, we didn't think being historians would handicap us as much as it did. Right. But uh, in the first million dollars came from um, Steve Forbes and Tim Forbes uh, from New York. And that was in 98. Uh, after Before that, the largest gift was 300,000. Uh, that bought that museum of artifacts in France. Uh, and, um, and then Frank Stewart was the first major local donor in the spring of 1999 with a couple million and uh and that that was absolutely had to have that in order to open on on schedule and it, he'll forever be uh in the pantheon of heroes for me because i was at the helm then and i i proved that i, I told the board we're going to open on june so we'd missed three opening dates already and so you know, the other thing hurting us, too, was uh, people knew kind of in the business community that we'd gone broke a couple times. We And then they knew we bought this old dilapidated warehouse. Uh, but we didn't have any leadership from, aside from the board. And, and, and so there was a reason, good reason to be skeptical about whether or not we were going to make it until until just before we did. How did, um, I think, two of the best known people involved with this were Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. How did they get involved? Well, they got involved because of um, uh, Saving Private Ryan. And, uh, and what happened there was Steve and I knew, and this was while I was had just become chairman and CEO in 98. So in the spring of 99, I think it was, that uh, Steve got a call from Spielberg and uh, said, we have just made, and Steve was working on a book over in Bay St. Louis. And it's this call from Spielberg who says, you know, uh, we made this movie. Uh, and um, Steve said, yeah, I've heard about it. You know, it's a, um, and I know if you're doing it, it's probably great. And he said, well, it's all done, except it hadn't been released and won't be released until another four or five months. <clears throat> we haven't put the credits on it or anything yet. And so we can change anything. And we want you to come out to Los Angeles and see it and, and tell us if, what mistakes we made. And Steve said, I'm not, I'm writing a book. I don't have time to come out. Send me a videotape. He <laughs> <laughs> said, oh, no, we, you know how much security is around these yeah. things before release. And he said, no, we're going to send the film crew uh, and we'll show, bring it to you. And 
So on a Sunday morning, Steve calls me. They picked him up in a limo in Bay St. Louis. He says, Nick, he says, they they are, I'm going to see the movie. I said, you are? I said, where? He says, well, they're taking me, They, you know, over the Oakwood Mall over on the West Bank. They had that movie theater over there. And it was a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. And he drove up and he says, they got security guards ringing the whole theater. And I'm the only one going in to see it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he was a smoker and he got so amped up after the first 23 minutes of that movie that he said, stop the movie. I got to go out for a smoke. <laughs> 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 and then he went back and he told Spielberg it was the greatest uh World War II film he'd ever seen, maybe the greatest uh, film on war that he'd ever seen. And Spielberg said, well, we'll change anything. He says, no, and this is perfect. He said, you don't need to say anything. It's not, you know, it's Hollywood. I understand you, but you got the basic outlines of the story, right? And uh, anyhow, long story short, uh, Spielberg, he sent him a letter saying how great it was with more specifics, but uh, Spielberg said, you know, would you be willing to come out and uh, help us fly around the country and promote it? Maybe bring veterans out in different cities and, and you know, the normal routine that you do before a release. So he flew around the country for three weeks with Hanks and, and uh, Spielberg. He says, I won't charge you anything. I've only, I only got two things I need from you for me to do this. He said, one of them is that I want you to commit to come to the opening of this uh, museum I'm starting, this D-Day Museum down in, in New Orleans. And um, and secondly, I'd like you to both make contributions to it. Uh, and he said, of, of significance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they did, and they remained loyal to their commitment. And as you know, they were there, uh, here uh, for three days uh, and gave us a tremendous amount of time. And, and of course, um, both of them stayed hooked up with the museum and after Steve died. And, and I got to know Tom Hanks pretty well. Um, I got to know Spielberg well, too, not just then, but in subsequent years. But Hanks came back for the D-Days of the Pacific, the opening of the Solomon Victory Theater, uh, came back for the premiere of the Pacific, uh, HBO, the Pacific series. Uh, and just came back recently for three days for the opening of our last pavilion, uh, the Liberation Pavilion, and helped as the executive producer for our most spectacular exhibit, Beyond All Boundaries, which he helped me with for uh, almost three years. It was a lot of time uh, for someone who's one of the great celebrity stars of, of Hollywood uh, throughout the world. So he's been really committed to the project. I mean, from the beginning. Yes. I don't think when I asked him after Steve died and I was working on the expansion plans and he asked me what, what's going on with the museum. <laughs> and that was at the wake that he and Spielberg flew in for over Bay St. Louis to, to go to the wake of, of Stephen Ambrose. And I said, I started to tell him, you know, what, what I was imagining. And one, one thing I was struggling with was, I wanted to do some epic uh, theatrical or film experience, and I had no idea other than that it, it had to be epic and had to be different and had to use the latest immersive theatrical technologies to, uh, so I knew what I imagined, but I didn't know how to execute anything. All I knew was Hollywood 
you could spend a lot of money out there and have a bust. <laughs> and so this is going to be expensive. And I asked him if he'd help. And he said, sure. And I said, well, I won't, I won't ask you for more help till I get a creative director that has an idea of what to do. Cause I didn't know it was going to be IMAX or what we have now or something, but I wanted it to be, uh, you know, a significant uh, uh, show. And he, after Katrina, those two or three years that we were working on scripts and Imagineering, I'd go out to Pasadena every six months or four months, and we'd exchange scripts back and forth with myself and Don Miller and a few others that were helping. Hugh Ambrose, his son, was helping. I mean, it's, and he never charged a cent for any of his time. I mean, and I wouldn't have had any money to give to him anyway. He just <laughs> did this because of his commitment. I think it's quite extraordinary and uh, and a wonderful, wonderful person and very creative. I mean, I can't tell you how much he helped uh, uh, our script development and his critiques, even after we'd been through it as historians and trying to define it. Amazing man. Now, the... Um... The grand opening day of the museum was what June six two thousand. That's correct. Um, and this was the, 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 this was the European port. I mean, the, the the Pacific port hadn't existed. Okay. Yeah, the Pacific D days came eighteen months later. We had another grant from Congress, uh, a couple of million from Senator Stevens, uh, in nineteen ninety eight that was dedicated just to do the D-Days of the Pacific because Senator Stevens was in the CBI in China, Burma, India. And, and he, he wanted to, us to do more. So we expanded from Normandy to the D-Days of the Pacific. And those were all Higgins boat stories too because they were used in all those. You know, a lot of people don't know, but there are about 135 D-Days in World War II. Uh, all, the, all the amphibious assaults and they all, all used Higgins landing craft. Uh, so that came December seventh. Most of those were in the most of those were in the Pacific. Yes, yeah. Well, there were uh, there were uh, North Africa too. There were two in North Africa and then Sicily, and then uh, Salerno and Anzio uh, before Normandy. Uh, but then the rest. So you know, the first seven, six or seven were in, in not the first six or seven, but six or seven were in in Europe, and the rest in the Pacific. Well, if you don't mind, let me tell you my personal opening day story that day, June okay. 6th, 2000. Okay. Uh, I wanted to go, but I, I couldn't have had something else. But I, I did that morning, I had to go downtown to pick something up. And I was driving back toward Metairie and going down Poitras. And I could see alongside the Superdome where the parade was forming. And I thought, well, it'd be fun to just kind of walk and see it. And miraculously, a parking place opened right there on Poitras. Somebody pulled out. So I pulled in and said, well, let me just walk by real quick. Just walk by the parade where they were loading. And so I just walked by. And Stephen walked by and looked at the people. And I passed this truck that had veterans of the landing from the 101 Airborne. Yep. And I stopped and I looked. Even telling the story, I get, I get emotional. These old men, okay, with artificial arms and legs and everything else. But they look sweet. I mean, they, I mean, they, yeah. you know, they had a service capsule on that. But I mean, that really moved me. I mean, I I just lost it when I saw that. It was just a, a really sad. And they had lived what like by this time what like sixty years with those, uh, uh, you know, with those ailments, the artificial yeah. limbs. And that was just a very very moving sight. 
It was one of the most, uh, when I think about it, it's still emotional for me. Uh, it was not only the culmination of the opening, but all those veterans there. We had uh, about 6,000, uh, had that truck parade with uh, 80 trucks with about 20 in each truck, 200,000 people on the parade route. It's according to General Mize, that was the police chief who had a monitor, and they're used to uh, evaluating the size of crowds. And and Steve Ambrose always used to comment, nobody was showing beads. <laughs> uh, I mean, they were saying, had signs up saying thank you to these veterans. And a lot of them said it was the it was the parade, uh, the welcome home parade they never never ever got. Uh, it was such an emotional day for everybody. And, and, you know, we were there from eight o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night with the parade. Then the New, the New Orleans Arena, we were the first uh, event in the New Orleans Arena next to the Superdome after it opened, when it first opened. Three hours of events there uh, and Medal of Honor recipients and veterans talking. And I mean, it was, a. I think people who, Got any piece of it like you did? We'll never forget that that day. And then the day they opened the um, the Pacific section, there was a similar thing. There was a parade, and yeah, it wasn't as quite as uh, big, but it was still still impressive. And uh, and then that was it until two thousand nine. Uh, we had the master plan. We knew where we were going, and and uh, a few. Uh, it took us two years to develop that. Uh, almost all of it was developed, uh, created after Steve had passed. He saw he was in the first planning meeting, and we had a museum design company from uh, Canada that had done strategic development of planning for museums all around the world. And and we had went up to Congress and went to Washington D.C. to announce our capital campaign. So here we started with four million and. We approved a campaign goal of 182 million and a 300,000 square foot. So four years after opening, that's pretty uh, courageous. Of, of and that was all local board. We didn't have national board members um, uh, initially, you know. And uh, and Boise Bollinger succeeded me as, as chairman. And I think I don't think I could have gotten a board to approve that without Boise and some of the other board members. I talked to somebody who was on the board. I don't know if he's still on the board, but he was on the board. And he's a wealthy man, okay? But he was saying this is a hard board to sit in on because it's a real high roller board. And he says they were talking one day, and they were talking about something, some project, and they said, well, how much did it cost? Someone said $5 million. And one of the board members said, okay, I'll cover that. You know, So <laughs> this is not a, an easy board to be on, you know? <laughs> Well, yeah, it, it was in the beginning for the first 10 years, but the last 10, especially the, the, the period after 2012, 14, 15, as we got close to the end, we had converted to a national board of trustees. And uh, so 60% of the board came from outside the city and state. And and we yeah I, we had some tremendous uh, corporate leaders uh, many many CEOs who who made significant contributions um, and it was uh, pretty amazing uh, to see uh, the first big corporate gift came from Boeing and uh, uh, 
2009-10 for the U.S. Freedom Pavilion, now called also the Boeing Center, to get a B-17 in there and raise the roof, make it a little bit taller building to accommodate it. But that 15 million was, I mean, that, that was it was hard for me to ask that. I couldn't even get that number barely out of my mouth. <laughs> 15 million from Boeing? Wow. Well, the day before it was 10 million and uh, <laughs> I asked, asked one of my trusted advisors, he said, how much is it? He said, how much do you need? I said, well, 10 million will just cover the cost of the plane and increasing the size of the building. I said, I won't have anything left over. He said, I said, I need 15. He said, well, ask for 15 then. It won't matter to them. They're making a lot of money in the, <laughs> those <laughs> days. <laughs> and the vice president of Boeing uh, was there and not only did I have to ask for that much money, I had to tell them we have to go back with the old plan in 30 days if you because we were already getting ready to start construction. I said we have to change the whole blueprints if we're going to go up uh, another to 90 feet and and buy B17. So here I'm asking for 15 million dollars, which I couldn't even imagine the sum, uh, and I guess desperation <laughs> prompted me to get the number out of my mouth. And then I had to say, uh, we have to hear from you in 30 days. <laughs> so, uh, so, and we did, I mean, it was literally the 29th day they called and said. Now at some point the decision was made to change it from being the uh, D-Day Museum to the National World War II Museum. That's correct. Uh, the idea to change it, the, the initiative uh, came from Senator Stevens, who came down four days before we opened uh, the museum on June 6, 2000. And Steve Ambrose and I, he loved Ambrose. And Steve used to go up to his fishing camp up in Alaska. And he was the head of appropriations and, and the head of defense appropriations. And so he pulled me and Steve into, into my office up on the fourth floor and he shooed away his staff and said, just you guys come in here. He said, uh, you know, you know, I want you to do more of the Pacific and you are going to do the D-Days of the Pacific. I've got you the money for that. But if, if you talk to your board and, and you all will take on doing all of World War II, including the rest of Europe and the Pacific, he said, I'll help. And Ambrose, I mean, we were both exhausted now. This is 10 years, and I'd been, you know, leading the museum for the last two years. And Steve, we really thought we were done. Uh, and I think if I'd have said, if we'd have said no, he'd have walked out and said, well, okay, you know, but he said, you talk to your board and you get back to me. And if you guys think you'll try to figure it out, I know you're going to need more property. Uh, and, but I can help with that. And so I said, if, I said, yes, <laughs> we'll, we'll give it a try. But it took uh, a year or two. And then, but he true to his word, he got us three or four million a year for the next three years. And we bought three city blocks of land. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and you had to know what land you were going to be on if, uh, if you were going to master plan the whole, uh, the whole exhibit. Uh, and, and so by 2000, End of 2003, uh, we had the plan ready. We went to Washington in February of 04, and we had a big thank you dinner uh, for about 700 people. I mean, military, Secretary of Defense uh, was there, uh, 
Tom Hanks came for that. He agreed to be the honorary chair of our capital campaign, made a talk. And we had 13 veterans uh, in Congress who were still World War II veterans. And we honored them all that night as a way of thanking them. So we thought we were off and running, you know, uh, but uh, the next year uh, was Katrina. And everybody thought that, well, we're finished. And, uh, and we thought, of course, a lot of people thought the city was finished. So absolutely. Yeah. As somebody as I, I think I've called this chapter, you know, Every, uh, from Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan till you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> 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 well, that's that's what happened with us. We got a big punch in the mouth, and uh, and uh, so it was a it was a gut check. It was really very courageous for that national board. We had a meet in Dallas to decide if we were going to scrap the whole expansion and go back to just being the D-Day Museum or or go forward and it was a very courageous decision and none of them had I mean, nobody could get in the city uh you know i mean so the city was totally empty and devastated they didn't get to see it we had a board meeting in the city uh in january and we did what everybody does they want to go out and see the devastated areas in the ninth ward and then they had to come back and vote on continuing <laughs> so <laughs> It was pretty gutsy board, I'll tell you. Yeah. So, so that was the time when it was changed to the uh, National World War II Museum? Yeah, it was. We had the master plan was done. We'd made a commitment to it. And we we still kept the little D-Day logo for another year or two. And uh, but we D-Day and it said National World War II Museum underneath that. So we weren't calling it the D-Day Museum anymore. And we had changed our whole governance from D-Day. The nonprofit was was rebuilt from scratch. Uh, and, uh, and and then officially, uh, a year or so later, we rolled out the, the full name and, uh, and, but we were, we had the master plan and the 300,000 square foot, all the buildings you see there uh, in the, completed master plan were were envisioned in that plan and it was to be the national world war ii museum so that that decision got made really in 2003 but we took a, a few years to uh, to roll it out uh, from a, a fundraising point of view now the, now the um the book says that the museum and I, I i'm not surprised but i'm proud actually uh, that the museum is the second most visited museum in the united states it's amazing. Yeah, it is second most visited, I think, on a pro rata basis on the size of the cities mm -hmm. and so forth. But I just, you know, it's almost uh, 10 million people since we opened. Uh, now, and also the Smithsonian museums are free. So, you know, so it's a, so you're, you know, and we charge, but, you know, that's, um, it is pretty amazing. We're, we're ranked number three or four, the most popular museum in the country, according to uh, TripAdvisor. And and even globally, uh, the, the TripAdvisor has us ranked mostly in the top 10 most popular museum. Just a popularity, it's not a scientific poll, but we like the number yeah. <laughs> and the ranking. Uh, I mean, in some polls that they do, we're ahead of the Louvre and some other very, very famous museums. And it's based on people who've been here who are motivated to send letters in. And 
TripAdvisor. And TripAdvisor is, you know, a big travel booking company oh, yeah. for airfare and everything. So, yes, it's uh, uh, it's been just amazing, uh, really. It's uh, hard for me to believe sometimes. I think if Steve Ambrose came back to Earth and looked around, he'd probably have a heart attack and go back to wherever he came from. <laughs> Uh, but he'd be Ambrose... very, very pleased and uh, and proud. When did Ambrose die? In October of uh, 2002, right? About eight, nine months, 10 months after uh, we opened uh, D-Days of the Pacific. 11 months after, yeah. Uh, so he, he, must have been, he must have been really, really proud of what he was seeing. He was. He he knew that uh, we were on the road to to doing World War II Museum. He came to a board meeting in April before he was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, and he'd been in the Pacific because he was working for Spielberg trying to get a, a book on the Pacific as a basis for a museum. And uh, and he kept pushing me because he knew we were starting the planning for the master plan. And he said, well, how much is it going to be? He said at a board meeting, how much, what do you think it's going to cost Nick? And I said, I, it's way too early to tell Steve. I said, uh, he said, come on. He says, I want the number and give me a number. And Boise and others will remember this. And I said, well, they're, they're estimating it might be as much as 80 million. <laughs> And he put his head down on the conference table and he pounded on the table. He says, no, 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 it can never be that much. We will never, ever raise that much money. And, uh, and we said, well, you know, it might be more or less turned out to be about $100 million more when we finished the planning two years later. And of course, now it's it's over $400 million. Uh, so it's, uh, it's way more than... Uh, than anything we could have imagined. And the museum's had a economic impact of over $2 billion uh, since opening on the state of Louisiana. And we also have the largest, uh, we got 700, we've had a total of 750,000 members across the country. Uh, at any one time, probably about 150,000 right now, but you know, some drop off. Uh, in every state in the United States, uh, have, have members of this museum, and most are giving just because they believe in the mission, and not because if you live in Tacoma, Washington, that you're going to be able to get free admission. <laughs> um, but a pretty amazing uh, power again, that uh, that the museum has to draw people from around the nation. Yeah. It's amazing. And then I, I'm sure you've thought of this, but in, in the early days, they said, well, this would be great. Uh, there's X number of veterans still left from the war, but of course that declines every year. So there's going to be some point when there's not going to be any veterans from the war yet. But are you envisioning yourself as having, through the museum, of having built, built an interest among other people who just want to come and see it because of that? Well, we got that question already back in the in the '90s when we were building it, and a lot of people said, "Well, you're you're building a museum for a generation that's that's passing from the scene." And Steve Ambrose and I said, "You know, this museum is going to be of interest uh, for centuries to come." And I used to tell them it was more of a 
European historians that talk about the Bayou Tapestry in Normandy. There's still two million people a year that go there almost a thousand years later. Two million. And uh, and look at there's three or four million that go to the Civil War battlefield sites. So this museum is going to be an attraction for a long time to come. So that was never a concern. There's hardly ever a World War II veteran there anymore. They're all 9,900 at this point. Uh, so you might be, you know, we, we, we brought a number of veterans. We probably had about 40 for the grand opening, but they have to come with somebody assisting them. They're either in wheelchairs, uh, but normal attendance, maybe, maybe one or two a day if we, if we get that many. And Ambrose's books have become a very important source for building up interest in the, in, in the war. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can personally attest to that, that they're really important books. Yeah. And, um, I took a tour a few years ago, like in the European part of, of where the war was, and there were several places where there'd be a sign saying, this is what happened here. And then it would have a quote from Ambrose, uh, from yeah. Brian Ryan, you know, describing the battle that happened at this site. So yeah. that itself is very important. I mean, he, he's really self-building the, uh, the thing. Yeah, it was. I mean, of course, you know, his book was the Bible for the exhibit designers, and yeah. uh, and and then and then uh, he had already done the research for D Days of the Pacific. Uh, he gave all his research to Don Miller, who wrote a book because he said, "I'm I'm not going to live long enough to write it," and he chose him to to write the book. Uh, so we always rely on top historians who have a specialty, whether it's in the Pacific or Europe or Liberation Pavilion. Uh, and Steve, but Steve was the uh, the historian who was probably America's most famous historian among public, um, as a public historian, uh, writing not for university presses, but with the trade presses, uh, because he wanted to appeal. That's one thing about Steve, and I both shared this in common as historians, we wanted to have ever larger audiences. And he saw his books with Simon Schuster and the trade press as a way to reach uh, bigger audiences and not as heavily footnoted, uh, for example, like you would write for an academic or a scholarly book. They were still very scholarly, but he was such a brilliant writer. And, uh, and then a museum is another way to expand a great story, a great history to larger audiences that don't know much history. And, uh, you know, today's college students, I mean, you probably, most of them wouldn't even know when World War II was in the last century. So yeah. a study of history has uh, declined so much that uh, we have a role to fill there too. Yeah, that concerns me. It's, uh... Yeah, me too. That's a, a whole other topic. Anyway, um, what's your favorite thing in the museum? A favorite? Uh, well, that's very hard. It's like picking your most favorite child. Yeah. <laughs> Since I've got my fingerprints over almost every yeah every exhibit uh, uh, in the uh, in terms of exhibits, um, I would say the. Uh, the Guadalcanal exhibit is the one that uh, I, I love the most. Uh, uh, in, in terms of, I mean, artifacts or photographs, uh, 
you know, there's a web belt from a private who uh, was there when we opened that we have in the in the D-Day galleries. Leo Shear, um, he was a medic, and the web belt has these bandages pouches, about five or six of them, and uh, his Higgins boat was sunk on the way into shore in the middle of the battle on D-Day, and he he wrote me when he sent me the, the web belt uh, before we opened. I want you to have this, he said, because my Higgins boat was blown up. Uh, I had to swim to France. <laughs> uh, his spelling was not very good or his grammar, but he told the story. And he said, but when I got to shore, he said, all my bandages were, were wet and run. And he said, I went through the the beach in the middle of that landing and I took the because every GI had one bandage pouch on their web belts and I took those bandage pouches off and so the face of of every one of them that was lying dead there on the beach uh, went onto my web belt and then I went to work as a medic uh, through the rest of the day but he said I carried that, uh, had that web belt all the way through uh, France and the Battle of the Bulge. And every time I used it, on, uh, I, when I pulled out that pouch, I remembered the face of that, that, uh, that dead veteran that was lying there on the beach. And, and then, lo and behold, so we, we have it in a case. Uh, and lo and behold, I'm walking through on opening day, and there's Leo Scher standing there. And uh, I say it was really a moment. So that's a that's a pretty special one for me. But there, I could go through for hours talking about the special artifacts. Uh, so, well, I can if I warned you before this, I can go for hours talking about the war. But I promise you, we wouldn't go much more than forty five minutes. So, <laughs> yeah. um, even though I okay. Anyway, the book "Building the National World War II Museum" is this available by? Um, where do you get it? Is it on? So you go to the website and uh, and there's a, 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 a you know the National World War II Museum uh, website and then you and if you just call that up it'll be the first thing that comes up and then you go to the store site and you can order the books you know online or else just go down if you're here in town just go down to the museum store and and uh, they they sell them uh, we have three stores there and they sell them in all of them so uh, they, they're going like hotcakes. Oh, really good. It's Just a very visual, uh, you know, it's 80% photograph. So it's a visual, a photographic essay of the evolution of the museum, including a, a sketch of the, of the original building that was designed for the research park on the lakefront. Mm -hmm. The only, only sketch in captivity, I would say, but you couldn't find anything else. Um, but that that was there, and we even designed the exhibits for that before we went downtown. But it's the people, the veterans, the stories, the artifacts, uh, and then there's a history that kind of a, a thin history that goes along. About 20% of the book is devoted to the history. My book coming out in two years, the longer book, is uh, called An Unlikely Story, <laughs> I think I might have said. Uh, that will be just the other way around. It's eighty percent narrative and about twenty percent photographs. And so the story is about the building, or, or the uh... it's about the whole the whole thing that this book is about, except that it's just uh, a lot more detail. Like my introduction that I wrote for this book, uh, 
covers 10 years in the book I'm writing. There's six chapters <laughs> covering those 10 years. Uh, and then another six chapters for the last 20 years. So, uh, so it's, uh, the, getting this museum started was the hardest thing. Uh, and, and the most, uh, the, the the times when it was most likely to have failed too uh, so uh, so that's why it took it took a lot more time to to tell that story a lot more pages, I should say yeah this is a mission pathing one really nice if you go to the museum and you visit I mean it's not all wars and stuff. I mean there's some fun things there too I mean to see and some of the exhibits but but one amenity is the, the hotel that y'all developed, the Higgins Hotel. Yeah. I, I, I feel good in there. I feel good, like, seeing the murals and the, it's yeah. just well done. And then there's a, a bar up on the roof called Rosie's. Rosie's yeah. on the rooftop. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, themed it hotel. You know, yeah. it's a Hilton product, but it's a themed, because we own it and developed it, we could uh, we could do that. And uh, photographs of World War II themed yeah. uh, so it's but it's not an exhibit per se. It's it's the lighter side of the war and uh, the wax and the waves and the Andrew sisters and and yeah. uh, Art Deco kind of architecture as you say. And it uh, and but what, what we got out of that is primarily it's an education and conference center that uh, tracks uh, we put on our own conferences and and uh, we have groups come down that. Uh, we market aggressively to come down and to see the museum and and uh, the concierge lounge is called the Patriot Circle, for example, and the restaurants, the Cafe Normandy. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's a fun place. I just delighted to be in there. So anyway, boy, just thinking back at that initial conversation with Ambrose, I mean, it's come come a long way, and I'm sure there's a lot of satisfaction that you have also. So, anyway. yeah, uh, I. It's a, it's a journey in my life, a second career after 32 years at the university to have another 20 some odd years um, building this museum. It's not a future that I imagined when I was on sabbatical going back to the classroom to teach for another four years before I retired from the University <laughs> of New Orleans. And by the way, I want to say too, this museum would not have happened without the University of New Orleans. I mean, not just that Steve and I were there, but because the chancellor and so many professionals, uh, business affairs, uh, facilities, planning, the foundation, at a time we had no staff, the board relied on them, uh, on the university, and I did uh, very heavily. And, and they brought a certain level of professional oversight on things that I was trying to get done that I could not have done without uh, the support for the University of New Orleans. So if it had just been two historians, mm -hmm. and that, without the board and without the university <laughs> especially, we, we wouldn't be talking about this museum today. And Gregory O'Brien was always a real go-to guy. You know, let's let's do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was excited about the idea. And, you know, the development of the research park was his idea. I mean, he got the, he got the land then told me to figure out how to, get the roads in there and get the money and get the companies to come in there. And a lot of people thought that wasn't a good idea either. So he, one thing he thought was getting the museum in there would prove that we could get a, we could get something related to the 
university in that site right away. And uh, so he was, a, he was a champion all the way through and for the Ogden Museum too. So he gets some credit for that. Yeah. Well, Nick, thank you very much. Um, looking forward to your book. Hope there are many other books in, uh, in your future. I don't know how many more. <laughs> okay. I've only I'm, I only got one more one and a half more chapters to go. So by February I should be done yeah. with this one, and uh, a good chance it's going to be out in twenty five. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Errol. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts, and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.